Hello and welcome to Harris in Conversation, our Harris Federation teaching and learning podcast brought to you remotely from London. Our series aims to bring important and relevant teaching and learning conversations to you, whether you're a frontline teacher, a school leader, an educational enthusiast, or you just licked on this by mistake. My name is Ollie Blagden, and today I'm joined by the man, the legend that is Tom Bennett. Tom needs no introduction, but let's do it anyway. Tom is the founder of Research Ed, a grassroots organization that raises research literacy and education and campaigns for better evidence awareness worldwide. It now holds events in six continents and 13 countries, attracting thousands of followers and generating discussion and change in schools throughout the world. He is also the editor of Research Ed magazine with over 15,000 global subscribers. In 2015, he became the UK government's school behaviour czar, advising on behaviour policy as well as chairing the Mental Health in Schools panel. He's written four books about teacher training, and in 2015, he was longlisted as one of the world's top teachers in the GEMS Global Teacher Prize. In the same year, he made the Huffington Post's top 10 global bloggers list. He's also the director of Tom Bennett Training, which supports teachers and schools around the world in creating healthy behaviour cultures. Tom is a teacher fellow of Corpus Christi College, University of Cambridge. Today, we're here to discuss Tom's new book, The Running the Room Companion, which is a follow-up to his best-selling book, Running the Room, which was described by Doug Lemov as being a practical and beautiful guide, by Daniel Willingham as wise, clear and eminently practical, and by Dylan William as wonderfully accessible, practical and funny, a book that is required reading for all teachers. So, let's jump in and find out more. Hello, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. It is a huge pleasure to be here, Ollie. What an introduction that was. Quite a fanfare. Thank you very much. I think it's absolutely well-deserved. very special now. <laughs> so, Tom, it's 2020. Running the Room is published, the first book. The fans go wild. It's an indomitable success. Take us back to the beginning. What was it that compelled you to write the first book? And what was your aim? Um, if, I'm honest, if I'm honest, it's because there was so little out there for teachers to really get their teeth into in terms of a practical guide to understanding, I guess, the basics of why and how children behave in a classroom and what to do with that. I find that quite mind-boggling because when I went through teacher training, there was a 45-minute lecture on behaviour management and it wasn't that good. <laughs> but, it was, but it was the most attended lecture on my entire teacher training year. The idea is that you're, apparently you're supposed to learn this through osmosis. You're supposed to pick up behaviour management, which is one of the key skills a teacher needs in directing the learning of children is to direct their behaviour so that they can flourish in flourishing circumstances. So I remember going through my entire teaching career of 15 years, struggling through it and basically learning through failing and and thinking, this isn't good enough. Why, Why haven't we done better than this in one of the most important professions in the world? So eventually I wrote this book because the books that were out there were just so hopelessly impractical and very much focused on very boutique circumstances. I've read a lot of books that have got very good advice for teachers taking over very well-behaved classes, (laughs) or or very, very small children who who are very well-behaved. 
And the only book that came close to it was Doug Lamov's masterpiece, Teach Like a Champion, which is brilliant. And, you know, it's generally one of the best books out there. But what I wanted to try to do was write something which was even more focused on here's why this is all happening and here's what you can do to make a difference. Behaviour is so crucial. And, and it was lo- really low-hanging fruit for me to write this book because I'd spent my whole career talking and teaching and training behaviour. And I thought, well, I may as well put it down on paper and see how well it does. And I was delighted and surprised at the response it got. It, it, it really it kind, of, it kind of fell off the shelves of Amazon. So I was, I was pleased to see that. It absolutely did. And it's interesting thinking about the reasons for its success. I mean, when I first read it last year and being well aware of the vast range of work you've done in education, I knew I'd be reading something that was practical, apt, research informed. I think what I hadn't quite foreseen were actually the thorough explorations of psychology, cultural theory, political science, even philosophy that enrich those more tangible classroom strategies. You might argue that in some ways the book is in part a study of what it is to be human. Would you agree with that? And were those aspects of the book important to you? <laughs> Don't say that. Nobody will want to buy it. Um, <laughs> oh God, that doesn't sound much fun. Weirdly enough, a million years ago, I did a degree in philosophy right, and, and politics, which I loved. I loved, you know, because I heard that's where all the big bucks were you know, in philosophy, <laughs> and, which is why I was penniless and, and you know, a bartender for years. And what I, what I really find interesting about the entire debate about behaviour is that, weirdly enough, while I want to massively focus on practical solutions in classrooms and, you know, what you do with kids on a wet Wednesday afternoon, the justification for all that is really important because behaviour management and behaviour in general in schools is an enormous ideological battlefield it's a bun you know it's a bun fight where people you know people saying oh you know exclusions are bad exclusions are good you mustn't ever discipline a child um, you know you, you cure them through love there's lots of debates and so on and i realized that to really cut through this you have to show you're working you know you have to lay your foundations and say here's the why of the classroom here's here's why behavior is important here's why it matters here's why we behave the way we do which will be as much psychological as it is sociological, as it is political. So there's, there's, there, there, there's lots of things that can have to be dealt with. And it's in the book, but I, I think I said in the book, you know, please feel free to skip this part if you're not interested. But this is why I think we need to tackle behaviour. And these are the benefits of getting good behaviour. Because when you deal with children and you say, I need you to get your books out, I need you to sit there, I need you to be quiet or whatever, then frequently a lot of children will say, you know, why? Why should, why should I bother doing that? And if you as a teacher know this is why I'm doing it, then you can communicate that really quickly and easily to children. And it's normally an answer like, because I want you to learn and I want you to be safe and I want you to be happy and I want you to flourish. And if you can communicate to that children in a language they understand, they're far more likely to buy into the need to behave the way that you want them to behave. Because I frequently say that, Children frequently don't know how to behave because they've not been shown before. It's not their fault. Children frequently don't understand what you mean by good behaviour, so that needs to be explained to them. And children don't know why good behaviour matters, which means you have to have a value conversation with them throughout your relationship. And I think if you can include all three of these things subtly and subliminally in your conversations with children, you're far more likely to land with them when you're trying to persuade them to behave. Because behaviour management is almost always, like 99% of the time, it's an act of persuasion not compulsion. 
because you're not you can't really compel anyone to do anything you're not ben kenobi you don't have the jedi mind trick you know you're not Darren brown so I, th- I think that's why these things all kind of make sense because they're about what it means to be a human being and understanding that gets us a wee bit closer to understanding a how to interact with other human beings and b why we're doing it in the first place so contextualizing it really is essential not just for the teachers and the educators that will read the book, but actually enabling them to contextualize it for the pupils. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, I cut my teeth in behavior by running the TES behavior online forum. I was, I was like an agony uncle. And a lot of that was, I mean, it was, you know, people really, really wanted to know what to do tomorrow. You know, that, that's where I, I realized that the most important thing if you're a teacher is, you know, what do I do now? What do I say? What do I actually physically do? You know, the, people don't need high theory, but frequently, new teachers get sent into the classroom and they're, sent, they're told really meaningless things like inspire them <laughs> or, or worse, make them behave <laughs> <laughs> or engage them or something or some rubbish like this. Now, yeah, we do want to do these things, but you can't just say something so high end and high concept as that because it's meaningless. Nobody knows what to do with it. So you need to give people practical stuff. But what I realized on TS Behaviour Forum was that you also can't just say to people, behavior management is a series of tips and tricks it's not like you know finding the best route to get to the bus stop it's it's you know there, there, there's a lot more to it than just stand here and say this that you have to kind of lay it out in a structured form and i think that's what i've tried to do let's fast forward then to 2021 the running the room companion hits the shelves yeah. just a week or two ago i think at time now of recording and as with the first book becomes an instant success and you mention in this book's introduction that it's the director's offcuts of the original book, which yes. I have to be honest, made me think a little bit of Blade Runner. And if you're a fan of that film, you'll know that's definitely a compliment. <laughs> yes, okay. Not the director's cut. Exactly, yeah, that's it. Um, what does this new companion book set out to do and how does it differ from its predecessor? Yeah, it's, it's not the Zack Snyder uh, recut of, of Justice League <laughs> by any means. Um, I mean, I, I'm fairly transparent in the, open, in the opening introduction of uh, Running the Room Companion, which is that when I initially, initially wrote Running the Room, it was something like 650 pages, you know, and I, and I practically had to be restrained from writing more. And I know that brevity is the, is the soul of wit. And I also know that it's unfair to expect somebody to indulge an author in their endless ramblings. I mean, perhaps you can tell from this conversation. And that if you want to write something which is useful, it's got to be, as, as Chili Palmer once said in Get Shorty, as simple as possible, if that, you know. And I think that that's, that's an important point for authors. You know, they've got to be brief. George Orwell makes a similar point. But it got to the point where I, I couldn't reduce it any further without ruining the stock, if I can use that metaphor. And that there was so much left over I wanted to say. And essentially, it was originally meant to be the third section of the book, which was even more practical implications for what I'd set out in the first book. And it was looking at much more specific circumstances that teachers face all the time. Things like lateness, rudeness, what to do in your first lesson, how to reboot your, your, how to reboot your lessons, discussions about the role of humour in the classroom, and you know, how to script a lesson and how to script your reaction to children. So it was, it was much more practical stuff that were as a direct consequence of running the room. And what I've done to try to make the second book intelligible is I've, I've written like a four-page super summary of the first book. I've really juiced it in the companion so that my basic principles are laid out and, and they're not complicated. And most of what I teach about behaviour management isn't complicated. It's, you know, it's, it's fair. I hope it's reasonable and I hope it's simple to understand. And it kind of has to be 
because if you want to train people in behavior management, you cannot teach them things which require a PhD in psychology to understand. It's got to be stuff that 500,000 people can understand. I mean, there's 500,000 teachers in the UK. You have to set out stuff that everyone can access, and that's what I've tried to do by using that as, a, as an evolution. So there's a lot less philosophy in the second one, but it builds on the philosophy from the first one, if that makes sense. Uh, and the second one is, is, as I say, a lot more contextual examples. I think there's one point in the book which you explore actually the fascinating question of who is responsible for behaviour in a school. And you discuss two differing models along the way. The first, in which teachers are solely responsible for managing behaviour with little to no support from senior leaders. And the second, in which senior leaders deal with any and all behavioural issues, leaving teachers seemingly just to teach. You offer an alternative solution to this. What is that? Well, again, a lot of what I say sounds obvious to me. Maybe it's not obvious to other people, but it seems incredibly obvious. I used to go into a lot of schools. Do you remember going into schools? I remember that. It was a long time ago. I used to go to a lot of schools. <laughs> can't wait. What's the school, then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it looks like a computer to me. Um, and I often found two different types of problem. One problem would be, and these are both dysfunctional examples, one problem would be I would be asked into school by leaders and leaders would say, fix my staff. You know, I want my staff to completely run behavior management. It's not my job. My job is to, you know, write timetables and balance budgets or something like that. It doesn't sound very, very appropriate to me. But then the opposite problem also used to exist, which is that you get staff who would say, it's not my problem to deal with behavior. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have to deal with behavior. And they would expect senior staff to kind of take all the naughty kids out of their class and fix them and don't return them until they're fixed. Both of these admittedly you know extreme scenarios it was never quite that extreme but it was quite prevalent um are, are toxic and toxic and wrong the problem with behavior management is because there's so little training in it people often feel very unskilled in how to execute it and i mean that at a leadership and at a classroom level you know a lot of people are in the same boat here they've never been trained in how to do it so there are so a lot of people are thinking well you know when you ask them the question whose role is it to deal with behavior management frequently their answer is well not me and it's a, bit, you know, it's a bit like trying to get someone to confess to having farted in a lift. You know, it was always somebody else that's got to do something about this. And the, the somewhat obvious thing that, that occurred to me after a long time working with schools is that it's everybody's job to deal with behaviour management or to deal with behaviour. But not unlike the engine of a car, every piece in the engine has a different role, a different shape and a different aim. And everybody's roles cooperate and collaborate to create the greater end of a great behaviour culture in the school. Now, that doesn't mean that any one person has got the job to fix all behaviour. And if that sounds absurd, I have been in schools where people have been hired to be the behaviour person. And literally that means like walking up and down the corridors and going into every classroom and, and you know, telling kids off for being naughty and, do, and doing all the detentions with them and trying to by themselves, like Atlas, hold the world on their shoulders. It's what a ridiculous, absurd thing to do. It's like hiring Robocop to try and patrol your neighbourhood to fix all crime. Although to be fair, I think Robocop would be quite quite effective. Um, Robocop would be, uh, I guess. You would stop some types of trouble, you know. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't get a lot of carjacking, but, you know, white-collar crime might escalate, who knows. But the point is this, is that the, the leader's job, if I can put this super simply, is to create an environment where the people they line manage can do their job, which means helping to create a culture where there are systems of good behavior management, 
throughout the school, and that includes things like behaviour policies, escalation policies, uh, sanction policies, reward policies, but also pastoral policies and, and so on, and creating the systems to supplement that. And the role, for example, of the classroom teacher is to be the person that enacts the school behaviour policy and executes things like, you know, your C1, C2, C3 warnings, if that's what you have. That, that, that refers people for sanctions, if that's what the system is. That administers rewards, if that's what the system is, and so on. But also to make sure that they're using their interpersonal skills in the classroom as much as possible. There is a duty incumbent upon everybody within a school to perform their role satisfactorily, but the roles are different. And I think this is a very blurred line in many schools where nobody wants to admit that it's their job to do something about behaviour, and people then end up walking past fights and litter and noise in school because they think oh somebody else is supposed to deal with that you know but send not for whom the bell tolls it tolls for thee no man is an island sufficient in himself as john dunn famously claimed and i think that's absolutely true when it comes to a school which is a community and a community needs to be bonded by roles values and behaviors you mentioned the classroom along the way and moving it more to a teacher classroom sort of level mm. now and in your starting a class chapter you discuss those more practical steps that teachers can take prior to lessons to enforce good behaviour. Get your room ready is one piece of advice you offer. That is definitely something I know I used to agonise over for probably far too long as a teacher. What do you mean by getting your room ready and why is this so vital? Yeah, well, there, 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 there are two levels to that I can answer that with. There's a practical level and there's more of a kind of theoretical level. The practical level is this. I, mean, I used to, um, in another life, I used to be a chef. Not a very good chef, but a chef nonetheless. And I used to be a kitchen manager. I used to run restaurants. One of the endless joys of being a kitchen manager or a chef is that you, you turn up at the restaurant at five o'clock in the morning and you start to make your sauces and you start to do your prep and you start to do all your chopping so that when somebody says, I would like chicken alfredo pasta, you know, everything's ready to hand and you, and you can fly into it. When people cook at home, and it normally says something like preparation time, 25 minutes, which is obviously a lie because it's always two hours. And the reason why it's two hours is because you could do your prep. You've got to get stuff out of covers that you didn't know you had and, and things like that. Check, you know, check the sell-by dates and your spices. But when you're teaching a class, when a class is coming into your environment, and again, this is, this is, always, this is very much a pre- and post-COVID type conversation we're happening, happening here because, of course, these things have been shaking like a snow globe. When you're having... A class walk into your room. It's important that you spend as little time faffing as possible, and that they can just they can just slide into what you need them to do as quickly as possible. Which means that they need to be taught how to begin the lesson in advance, but also you need to make sure that your environment is as conducive as possible to a fast transition for a lesson. So that means I mean that can mean lots and lots of little practical things like making sure you have the equipment that you need, making sure that what's on the board is what you want to be on the board making sure that your desk is tidy because of what that conveys about you in the context of your classroom make sure your classroom is tidy make sure you've got your materials and your resources to hand make sure you've got you've got backup materials that you might need you know for example if you're a, if you're a primary school teacher you will need handy wipes <laughs> you know, things like that you know but you know the odd plaster or whatever but 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 it's, it's stuff like that that you also might need and the temptation to leave your classroom to get back up resources should be resisted as much as possible. So there's lots of practical stuff there about getting your room ready so that when they walk into the classroom, you're waiting on them rather than they're waiting on you. 
this is often a, a difficult thing to, to manage when, for example, you're moving classrooms. But even if you're moving classrooms, there are things you can do to prepare for that so that you're not the teacher with a Tesco bag trying to fish out their lesson plan amongst your shopping, mm. you know, and, 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 you know, cigarette butts and so on. So I don't know what kind of Tesco bag you have. Then the more theoretical aspect of getting your room ready is making sure that you yourself are ready as a person, that you know exactly what you want to do with them you know, and that you yourself are ready for the types of behaviour they might suggest to you. So, for example, if somebody slopes in late, what will you do? You know, prepare that before it happens. Make sure you've got your responses scripted and your verbal scripts ready before that happens so that you're not forced on the spot to think of what shall I do, what, what witty funny things shall I say? Because we know from cognitive psychology that decisions made under pressure tend to be bad decisions, which is why as much mental preparation needs to be done as possible for the teacher to get ready for the little micro behaviours that can set things wrong. You know, what are you going to do if someone comes in without a pen? Get that ready in your head. Either have pens or have your conversation ready or whatever. I, would, I mean, I would suggest just giving them a pen but then following up with it later so that the class can flow. It's little things like that that can make such a difference. And I'll never forget the 2015 study by the London School of Economics, which suggested that on average a student could lose one hour of, of education per day down to misbehaviour in the classroom. And that misbehaviour doesn't necessarily mean fights and chair chucking, but mo most of it is slow transitions, you know, between activities, between lessons from the playground to the classroom and so on. An hour a day, that's a, a day per week, and which is obviously a year per cohort, which I'm going to suggest most children could do with, with clawing back at some point. So that's why being ready isn't just some kind of optional bolt-on. It's incredibly important for, for the professional teacher. It's absolutely staggering, isn't it, that figure? And I mean, I think actually you've touched on something here, which is also, uh, I suppose, uh, such a well-known issue. But there's this idea of getting your room ready and then there's actually kind of how you manage behaviour in a classroom. Let's discuss now low-level disruption, which you describe in Chapter 6 as kryptonite for lessons, which I love. Why is low-level disruption so serious? I think it's serious because it's so insidious. It's, it comes to you smiling to some extent. It appears innocuous. It lo low level is the wrong phrase for it because it's so toxic. It dissolves your lessons slowly but surely. Most teachers fear the high level disruption, you know, the chair chucking, the, you know, the extreme rudeness, the, the, the fighting and so on. And when you're prepared for that level of misbehavior, when you only get low level misbehavior, you think, well, this isn't so bad. You know, they're just chatting a bit. They've just got their mobile phones out occasionally. I can deal with this. But of course, the net effect on their learning is, is disastrous. If someone's on a mobile phone, you know, they're, they're not learning and they've probably missed something which will then make it hard for them to catch up with the rest of the lesson. If somebody's chatting to their friend, you know, the same kind of thing, if somebody misses the first five minutes of the lesson, then if you have to restart the lesson, then 25 people have lost five minutes of their learning. You know, there are big, big consequences here. And crucially, low-level disruption normalises the belief that it's okay not to engage fully with the lesson. It normalizes the belief that, you know, you can get away with some mucking about. And if one person chooses to involve in low-level disruption at one point, and other people think it's okay, if it's become the norm for the classroom, then essentially throughout your entire lesson or your entire day, kids will be mucking about, which means that the whole day will be spoiled to some extent, and you'll have got two-thirds of the learning out of it when you could have got 100%. So low-level disruption is... is as I say, it's, it's, it's dangerous because it's, it seems so innocuous. It seems such a small thing, and it's not. It's the most common disruption you face. And because it's common, it's the thing you have to deal with and tackle most. 
You know, thinking about um, low-level disruption and I suppose behaviour generally and how we might tackle it, you do mention in your book in chapter nine something about a kind of teacher persona you might choose to employ. Chapter nine actually made me a happy man, by the way, and (laughs) here's why. So not long after I finished my training year, my head of English, who's a brilliant lady called Anne-Marie, in a speech in the school staff room, kindly referred to me as the Mary Poppins of the English department. Ah, I see. Which I didn't really know how to take at the time, I'm going to be honest. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You probably know what's coming though, but in chapter nine, when exploring the teacher persona, you coin this phrase, compassionate consistency, using Mary Poppins as an example of this approach. So thank you, by the way, for retrospectively empowering that nickname for me. What is the Mary Poppins approach? And what do you mean by compassionate consistency? Okay, the, um, <laughs> I can only feel empathy for the, for the, for the hard, hardships you had to endure there. Um, it's, it's funny because, I mean, Doug Lamov's got this wonderful phrase, warm, strict, which I, th- which I think is absolutely brilliant. And, and you know, in many ways, I am the Cliff Richard to his Elvis Presley to some extent. You know, I'm who you get when you can't get Doug Lamov. Thank God he's in America or I wouldn't have a career. Um, and, <laughs> and, but one of the things I thought was worth developing was this idea of warm strict. And I call it compassionate and consistency because we have to understand, you know, how we should understand our own teacher persona. And a lot of people think, oh, well, I need to be super strict with the kids. And there's a big element of truth in that. And a lot of people think, I know children, you know, children should be healed by love. And there's an element of truth in that too. But I think there's, there's, there's a sweet spot where these two things conflate. You know, whenever you watch an inspirational film about teachers, and, and God save us from films about teaching made by people who have never taught in a classroom, this is how you end up with a dead poet society. You, know? you mentioned <laughs> this, don't you, in the book? I, well, I do, because, I mean, who doesn't love dead poet society? Every time I speak to a class full of, of, te- of new teachers, I say to them, you know, whom amongst you was inspired to become a teacher by films like Dead Poets Society? And you always get some hands stuck up saying, you know, I wanted to be a teacher because I saw Robin Williams be this incredibly sackable teacher. And um, <laughs> it wouldn't last five minutes in the public sector. Anyway. <laughs> well, I'm not going to lie. I, I have all these years continually hoped that one day a classroom of pupils would stand on the desks for me, but it's, uh, it's not yeah. yet. Oh, they haven't? Oh, they used to do it every week. No, <laughs> um, captain, my captain. And, and, and they would walk out of school on your behalf. Um, and I think w- what's required is this understanding that in order to be a good teacher for children, they don't want Coco the friendly teacher. They don't want a clown. They don't want a tall chum. They need a grown-up. But they also need to know that you care about them. But those two things shouldn't, shouldn't um, dissolve each other. You know, they, these things should complement each other. And you frequently get teachers going to the classroom worrying the kids don't like them. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong, but by all means worry that people don't like you, but, but you can take it too far. And also your aim isn't for them to like you, your aim is for them to flourish and for you to flourish as a teacher. The aim isn't for them to like you. You know, if you want them to like you, give them sweets and toys and chocolate. And even then they won't like you, they won't respect you, they'll just think you're a mug. And this is where the trap we can fall into as teachers when someone says, oh, you need to engage them more. You know, as if that means giving them lots of easier lessons or lots of free lessons or giving them lots of treats and tricks. You know, or trying to be funny. And this is where a lot of the bad advice comes from because you think, oh, well, I need to form a relationship with the children. Well, you do need to form a relationship, but it's not that kind of relationship. And relationships aren't achieved by aiming at them directly. Those of you who've got partners, 
you don't you, you didn't make them fall in love with you by standing in front of them and saying i am lovable you must love me <laughs> you know you can't aim directly at it it's, it's it's built over time and one of the things that we know from maslow's hierarchies of need and so on is this idea that we all need to find meaningful work we all need to find meaning in other people we all need to be valued we all need to be recognized we all want to be part of communities and so on and as a teacher you need to build that and one of the ways in which you do that is by holding them to account having very high standards for them but also making them realize that that they matter to you but not in a kind of a cheesy fuzzy wuzzy way but just in in a look it, it really matters to me that you do well here and it really matters to me that you flourish as a student and as a human being this is why we have all these rules and standards in this classroom because I, because I want to believe in you and I want I want to help you and I want to support you. And once children believe that, that you know they'll walk a hundred miles for you. But if they don't believe that, then they won't. And you have to have a bit of both. And I, in my book, you know, I, I quote some studies from two thousand and five. I think it's Wobbles and Breckelmans that says that there's two planes in the teacher-student approach: dominance versus submission, and cooperation versus opposition. To super summarize, what that means is, is that what students really want is a high dominance teacher, but not too high, and a high cooperation teacher, but not too high. And what I mean by that is you need to have a teacher who's very, very clear about what they expect, lots of high standards, you know, lots of holding people to account, but not so high that you never bend, that you, that, that you don't have any kind of sense of reason about you. They also want high levels of cooperation, which is they need to know that you matter to them. So they matter to you, but not so much that, that they think, oh, this is just like a big cuddly pal. So it's high, but not too high on both of those planes. And I, and I think the thing I like about that research is that, you know, is that it agrees with me or I agree with it, which is that that's what students really flourish with. High standards, but high levels of professional compassion. It reminds me a little bit as well of, I think, Kim Scott's work, Radical Candor. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. What you're saying is that you know these relationships are absolutely key. It's less about the gimmicks, and I, I suppose about consistency. Yeah, if you're, I mean, if you're consistent and structured with it, if you ask a child who's the best teacher in the school, they never say the one that always gives the free lessons. They never, in fact, in fact, they think teachers like that are a bit of a joke. But they, what they do say is the best teachers are the ones who've got really high standards, with whom you know exactly where you stand, but also show that they care about your your flourishing. It's the two things together. That's that's the sweet spot. That's the magic ingredient. That's Mary Poppins, if I can say so. No, I, I'd just like to stress here, that I mean the film version, not the book version. The book version of Mary Poppins is often quite capricious <laughs> and unlikable. But the film version of Mary Poppins, uh, I mean, mileage varies, also, you know, obviously. But she's, but she's actually a bit of a hard ass. But she also really cares about the children. You know, and those two things kind of come through. And every time I watch Mary Poppins, I'm, I'm reminded of this. Every time, every day when I watch it. It is a great film, isn't it, Julianne? It's a great film. The sequel's not bad, actually. I really enjoyed the sequel. I have to admit, it's good, isn't it? You know, it's a hard. Sorry, we're digressing here, but it's a hard job, a hard thing to follow. And uh, and you know, my kids watch that about you know fifteen times in a week, so I'm pretty conversant with the plot and the, and the script now. Well, those those movies where they're able to return to a story, particularly from so long ago, bring something new and keep it fresh, but also so stay the original. It's amazing, isn't it? And and can you just say I am obsessed with any any kind of film medium about about teachers i watch any film if it's about teaching and teachers and most of it's rubbish mm. uh, but, but you know, some of it just really resonates but some of it you think that you know the person who wrote this has never been near a classroom now tom you have extensive 
experience in education, in case you didn't know that already. Aside from the many accomplishments we heard at the start of the podcast, notably you advised the government on behavioural policy, you visited over 400 schools across the country, it's hard to match that level of insight. What is it you think schools sometimes get wrong or misunderstand when it comes to behavioural policy? Oh, I mean, that's an easy question, if, if I'm honest. I'll tell you the reason for it first, and I'll tell you what it is. The reason why they get this thing wrong is that behaviour management has completely dropped out of fashion as something that we consciously, consistently and explicitly teach at, uh, at a classroom teacher level and at a whole school structural and, and policy level. People seem to think that children will behave well if your lessons are well planned and that behaviour throughout the school will be good if you know, there's a teacher in every classroom. The big misunderstanding is that behaviour is a curriculum. It can be learned. In fact, it is learned. Children that behave well, who queue up and are patient and kind and polite and so on, have been taught to be so by previous life experiences, circumstances, educational phases and stages and so on, you know, by their parents. It's not an accident. Children are born practically tabula rasa. You know, they know nothing, John Snow. They, they, don't, they don't know how to blow their nose or tie their shoelaces. It, these things are taught. And manners and, and civility and customs and habits and rituals are taught. Of course they are. We're not born with them. And that some children are more school ready than others when they get to school. I mean, we mustn't, we mustn't just go, oh, well, you know, these children are lovely. Let's have more of them. If children come to schools behavior light in terms of their curriculum, then we need to teach it to them explicitly and teach it to them in, in the same way we would teach anything else, any other skill or fact-based curriculum. We need to tell them. We need to get them to demonstrate it. We need to practice things with them. We need to correct their learning. We need to, we need to reteach them occasionally and revise it to defeat Ebbinghaus's famous forgetting curve. The point is this. Behaviour is a curriculum. It needs to be taught. Schools need to teach it, not just at the teacher level, but at the whole school level. And you need to teach students how to be students. Otherwise, it's deeply unfair. Otherwise, we, we just promote the Matthew effect. And those that hath, hath more, <laughs> he says, paraphrasing badly. And, and, and the children who don't know how to behave just get worse and worse and worse. So I think if you genuinely want to tackle uh, social inequality, disadvantage, if you want to increase well-being, mental health, learning, and all the other great you know, participatory gains of being in a school environment, focus on behaviour as something explicit and work out how you're going to teach it, not just to staff, not just to students, but also to staff. Fascinating. So teaching behaviour explicitly throughout the school, systemically, and, well, I suppose I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing you badly here now, but that's making it easy to behave and hard not to, I think you say. Yes, that, that's, that's one of my favourite lines. You know, make it as easy as possible to behave. You make, it, you make it as easy as possible to fly a helicopter by teaching someone how to fly a bloody helicopter you know you don't say go fly the helicopter and then and then give somebody a detention when they can't do it that's not a good place for discovery learning and behaving in schools is socially quite complex and so you've got to teach people how to do it otherwise you're abandoning them to their own intuition instinct and previous experiences and good luck with that so 2020 2021 needless to say have been game-changing years for mm. the educational landscape and indeed you reference this in the book We've had to adapt pedagogy swiftly to match the instability of the times. We've learned a lot along the way, whether that's research around remote and blended learning resources, how to deliver live lessons, the shocking extent of digital poverty. I don't yeah. know about you, but I think the question that's been on my mind recently is, 
where does this all lead? Where do you see education going next? Will any of these new norms stay with us? Or do you think it's going to be back to business as usual? Well, that's a great question. Now, let me just consult my crystal ball. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to suggest, as ever, the only way you can try and tell the future is by looking at the past. And what we know is that, <laughs> is that most people really don't like distance learning, right? This, this is not optimal. It's making the most of what we have when we are where we are. And it's absolutely the best thing we can do just now with, for most children. But nobody, I mean, apart from a few kind of, you know, technology zealots, I mean, very, very people would, would prefer to do it like this all the time. Children certainly don't, because schools are much more than just learning spaces, they're social spaces. They're spaces where we find meaning and identity by being in groups, because human beings are social animals and social creatures. And we saw last summer, when we re-expanded the cohorts at the end of the summer term, I don't say reopening because, you know, schools never shut. Kids were desperate to get back. They flew back through the gates, high-fiving and chest-bumping each other, as were the parents. We finally managed to get peace and quiet. And I say that as a father of two primary school-aged children. <laughs> a lot of it will just snap back to normal. People will go, oh, God, thank God for that, we're back. I suspect that distance learning will get binned as rapidly as, as, it, as it reared its head. Because while I think we've done a really good job in perfecting our access and use of it, I think its frailties and disadvantages have also been magnified and brought into the spotlight. I think behaviourally there might be a small dividend, which is that behaviourally these circumstances have forced schools to really think about how do we want children to behave and then how do we want staff to behave in order that children behave that way. And I think some of that will still resonate because people realise now they have to consciously and conspicuously and explicitly think about their behavioural norms rather than simply just expect behaviour to be some kind of weird byproduct of pedagogy. So those are my mystic Meg predictions, such as they are, suitably vague. My <laughs> prediction is that winter will be colder than summer and summer will be hotter than winter. I, I really hope so. That's as specific as I can get. Well, I think if anyone is placed to make those predictions, I would say it's absolutely you, Tom. Yes, um, you. Finally, in the spirit of celebrating those who've influenced our lives, Tom Bennett, who was your favourite teacher at school and why? Right, can I be really cheeky here? I'm going to say two favourite teachers and one inspirational teacher. Do you mind? Go for it. Because I don't want to do a disservice to anybody. My two favourite teachers at school, and I have to say two, there was a man called David Meek and there was a guy called Kenny Gray. They were both English teachers. They both taught me in my secondary school and I think it was in my third and fourth and fifth years of secondary school. And they just, they just um, absolutely inspired me in a good way. David Meek was, was, was deeply religious and I was, I, was, you know, I was a teenage atheist and we used to have fantastic discussions and he really, he was like a stone who could sharpen my knife on, as it were, because he was so clever. And he didn't hold back. He didn't treat you like a child. You know, you really, you really had these kind of difficult conversations with him. And he forced me to be better at English, as did Kenny Gray, who was just this wonderful, slightly more madcap teacher who used to wear, you know, rainbow-coloured braces and, 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 and dress like a children's TV presenter. But, but he was funny and he was witty and he was so well-read. And, you know, and, and if you wrote a bum line, he would say, that's a bum line. You can't write that. You know, that's, that's bad and here's why. He was you know, brutally honest, but also very, very kind and compassionate. Sadly, David Meek passed away several years ago. But Kenny Gray has just retired as the head teacher of a nearby school. So I'd like to pay tribute to both of them. And the third one is an inspirational teacher, but not in a good way. I'm not going to name her because that would be unkind. But she was one of my primary school teachers in like, you know, primary two or primary, you know, primary three or primary four. 
uh, back in Scotland in the 1850s. And I remember she said something, and th- th- here's a warning for you, right? I-, I feel like the ancient mariner here. Here's, the, here's a warning for you. <laughs> she said to the class, here are the five cleverest people in the class. And she listed five names. No. And I was, can you believe it? I know, it's bonkers, isn't it? And, and I was on the edge of my seat, praying she would say my name. Not that I thought it was the cleverest, but just, you know, I wanted some kind of recognition because I, cause I oh. thought I was okay. So, and she didn't mention my name. And I was crushed. I was crushed. But, and this is beginning to sound like a superhero or supervillain origin story. Instead of just being sad and getting given up, weirdly enough, it had the opposite effect. I remember thinking, I'll show her. I'll show her. So, you know, I studied as much as I could and, and, and I did everything I could to the best of my ability. And I read, did work, and I edited work. And I read around topics. I probably would have anyway. But it really G'd me up. It really, it, it drove me. You know, <laughs> this is probably the dark side of the force because anger inspired me. It was a terrible thing to do to, to, to children. You must never, ever do it. But it had this weird effect. I mean, it really goaded me into, into like really, really trying hard. So don't do that. But it had a very good effect. So she was like a dark inspiration to me. So those are the three teachers. I, wouldn't, I remember her name, but I won't say it. The emperor who created what you are now. I mean, useful, like you say. I mean, it's good to know as a teacher what to avoid, isn't it, as much as what to do. Yeah, cruelty. Yeah, humiliation tends to be two things I try and avoid in my teaching. I think that's probably for the best, isn't it? It's a good attitude, I think. So, Running the Room and the Running the Room Companion by Tom Bennett and published by John Catt are available now to buy from all good booksellers and online retailers and if you're that way inclined, are available to download on Kindle. They are both compelling reads, entertaining, informative, and practical in equal measures, and truly essential additions to your teaching and learning library. Tom, where can we find you online? Pretty much everywhere. I mean, Twitter normally. I'm online far, far too much. But Twitter's the easiest, at TomBennett71. Feel free to, to get in touch with me that way. That's probably the best way to approach me, if I'm honest. Tom, we are so grateful for having you on. Thank you so much for your time. My Um, pleasure. I salute your indefatigability. (laughs) Well, every time I watch Mary Poppins Returns, I will now think of you. And I you. Thanks again, Tom. Cheers, Ollie. Have a good day. This was Harris in Conversation. My name is Ollie Blagden. You can find the Harris English Consultants on Twitter at HFEDEnglish and me at Oliver Blagden. If you haven't already, check out our other teaching and learning interviews at podbean.com forward slash Harris in Conversation and our latest pupil podcast resources at anchor.fm forward slash learning with Harris or find both of them on Spotify. Join us soon for our next interview and until then, take care.